Hey, this is Hojo, and you're listening to me on Baseball and Barbecue with my two best friends, my new best friends, Jeff and Leonard. So y'all enjoy it, okay? Welcome to episode 87. 87, I am here with Jeff. As you guys know, I'm Len Aberman. This is Jeff Cohen. Hello. This is Baseball and Barbecue. And the music is because we have none other than baseball royalty. And how? what other way can you introduce baseball royalty than to have some British royal music. Baseball royalty. She is absolutely, she is the great granddaughter of one of the founders of the game, Daniel Lucius Doc Adams. And we're talking about Marjorie Adams. Yes, so we're going to have her on. We're going to have, you know, what are we charging for this? This is an episode that I would pay money to hear. We have Steve Ray uh, from Ultawa, Tennessee, Oh, from where? <laughs> Ultawa, ah, Tennessee, from Al's Nest Barbecue, and then we have a special spring training report from none other than Gary Looney, who was on once before about a year ago, and he's going to report on spring training in the pandemic. Straight from Angels Camp. It's going to be a great episode. We should get right to it. Let's get. But before we do. Before we do, I want to tell everybody, if they want to get in touch with us, give us a call at 516-855-8214. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Facebook, we're at Baseball and BBQ. Twitter, at Baseball and BBQ. YouTube, Baseball and BBQ. Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. Check us at our website, www.baseballandbbq.weebly. Dot com and please do us a favor rate and review us so now people know how to find us here we go marjorie adams great granddaughter of doc adams with a podcast which has half its content dedicated to baseball is there any doubt as to how much we love the game and its illustrious history that's why we are extremely honored to have as a guest a direct descendant of one of baseball's founding fathers. Dr. Daniel Lucius Adams, or Doc Adams, 
as he is known today, was a true pioneer. And thanks to his creativity and extreme efforts, we are able to enjoy a wonderful game, which in our hearts will always be known as America's pastime. We are being joined by Marjorie Adams, who is the great granddaughter of Doc Adams. And since we cannot thank Doc, we want to express our deepest gratitude to her for the wonderful contributions of her great-grandfather and hope we can aid in her quest to have him enshrined in the Baseball Hall of Fame, which is where he most certainly deserves to be. Lovers of the history of this game, you are in for a wonderful treat as we welcome Marjorie Adams to baseball and barbecue. Welcome, Marjorie, to the show. Thank you, Len. That's a beautiful introduction. I am honored, and on behalf of Doc, I thank you for all those nice words. We are honored as well. It's like baseball royalty. Oh, my heavens. (laughs) Oh, my heavens. Where's my crown? (laughs) You should get a crown, and not only because we see the people, because we're doing this by Zoom, but we also have on someone that we can't thank enough. We had the opportunity to meet, and there's some people you just you meet them once, and they become like I don't know. We're, we're like now kindred spirits. Pine tar. Hey. Thank you, my Pine buddy. Tar, we appreciate you getting Marjorie with us. We're we're so excited for this. So let's jump right in. Let's talk about. So let's talk about Marjorie Adams. So we're going to talk about Doc Adams and Marjorie and everything. No, we're else. not going to talk about me. That I'll put everybody to sleep. <laughs> Jeff, go right ahead. I, I think Pintar wanted to say something first. Not much. I'm going to try to stay out of the way a lot and interject when I can because uh, we will talk a little bit about Marjorie Adams because she deserves a lot of great credit what she's doing. But we are here for Doc, and she is pro- propelling Doc promoting Doc, uplifting Doc in so many great ways. It's just with the history and just just a great spirit and energy and effort. And that's what Marjorie has really brought. I met her years ago when we when she first kind of got into this. She was kind of new. And I've seen her just take on an energy. I mean, she, she's in her golden year. She's fighting as much now as she ever has. And she's really been a tremendous baseball gift. And she's been my great friend. We've been having just fantastic times on the field, but we've we've woven um, the Doc Adams experience into this because of Marjorie, and it's made my baseball more meaningful. And all of Connecticut and throughout the Northeast, we play with more of a purpose when we've understood Doc, the true foundation of the game. Of course, there were different gentlemen, but Doc was so instrumental, and I dare say the most influential man to develop the game it wasn't invented, but it was developed under his tutelage. And then especially his early encouragement to keep it going, it shouldn't be uh, lost. It could have just died on the vine if it wasn't for Doc's early uh, encouragement to keep things going. Isn't that right, Marjorie? Well, yes, I agree completely. Thank you. Completely. <laughs> Marjorie, could you tell us what it's like growing up to be the great-granddaughter of this baseball forefather? Well, I didn't grow up that way. I I grew up knowing about Doc, but nobody in my family ever, ever put the crown on him that others have. Oh, good heavens, no. He was my great-grandfather. We knew he'd been a doctor. 
we knew he'd invented the shortstop position. And that's pretty much all we knew. And the Knickerbocker Baseball Club. That's pretty much all we knew. Or all that was revealed to me. I mean, this was not daily conversation in the family. So I grew up knowing a little bit about him. But I have learned a thousand times more through family archives that I dug into when all this started and other people like John Thorne and his wonderful books and Peter Morris and Bill Reisick and all sorts of people who've written some wonderful books and have done some terrific research. So I've learned a great deal more from outside sources than I ever did from anyone in the family. It was not daily conversation. I want to make that clear. Yeah. So that's the thing. It's, we're finding out so much more now about the history of baseball. When I was a kid growing up, of course, if, I, if somebody said who invented baseball, the obvious answer back then would have been Abner Doubleday, which is... Oh, excuse okay. me, excuse me. Okay. <laughs> Look, but we know now that that was wrong, okay? There's many things in history that have been embellished that we know is wrong, okay? We know Washington didn't chop down the cherry tree. Okay, or if he did, he certainly didn't, you know, tell anyone or whatever. Yeah. Okay, there are all these things. Just the way Doubleday never told anybody. Right. (laughs) But so what is it about? So so let's talk about Doc Adams, okay? We find out that Doc Adams started back in, in the 1830s. I did some digging, right? I listened to some interviews. He wrote a letter to his sister, and in that letter, he first mentioned um his the bat and the ball, right? Which, Actually, which, it's the reverse. Okay. It was in 1832. Doc was at Yale, and his sister, who was then age 11, wrote him. And all the little news about the family and her school and all that. But there's a tantalizing line in there in which she says, I have not played with your bat and ball as you bid me. I forget it every morning, and indeed, I have not seen it since you went away. So obviously, he'd been home and he'd left her a bat and a ball. Now, we don't know what sort of bat or ball it was. It could have been cricket. It could have been wicket. It could have been town ball. It could have been just a stick with a ball. I mean, we don't know. But it is certainly proof of his interest in a bat and a ball type of game six years before Doubleday invented it in, in Cooperstown. <laughs> Let's get one thing clear. Doc was not a nickname. He was actually a medical doctor, correct? He was a doctor. He, he graduated from Yale in 1835, and then he went on to Harvard Medical School and graduated from there in 1838. He moved to New York City the following year, and he became a doctor. He was appointed a vaccine physician, for the city of New York and earned $400 a year. And he also volunteered his time with the New York Infirmary, which treated the poor. He was an attending physician there as a volunteer. And he was very involved with public health issues and was often called upon to help during the various cholera epidemics that ravaged the cities almost every summer. Mm -hmm. So yes, he was a practicing physician. That's terrific. And obviously an essential worker, as we like to say today. So how did he get involved with with baseball? 
Well, the 1832 letter while he was in college, it's obvious that he had an interest in sports. In fact, he did an interview with Sporting News in 1896, in which he says, and I quote, I became interested in athletics at college. So it was probably at Yale that he became interested in, in athletics. The family has about 150 letters written to Doc by his father. Only one letter from Doc to his father exists. It doesn't mention baseball. No one should get excited. But so we have this great stock of letters, none of which mention sports of any kind. And I suspect Doc never mentioned it to his father because his father wouldn't have approved. His father wasn't the least bit interested in sports. His father's only interest was education. That's all his father cared about, that and God, that and attending to his soul. Those were the only two things that mattered to his father. Now, back when uh, baseball was just beginning, it was meant just to be a game. It it was meant to be a way to exercise, really. It was a gentleman's game, right? There There was no cursing. They got fined if they swore. But it wasn't, it, there was, they basically played games among themselves. There were no other teams that they were playing against, right? Well, beginning. yes and no. A new research is coming out all the time. When Doc first moved to New York, he joined the New York Baseball Club in about 1839, 1840. And then he joined the Knickerbockers in 1845. They formally organized in September of that year. And Doc joined about a month later. The New York Baseball Club did exist to the point that Doc's club played them the following May, excuse me, June of 1846, and got beaten soundly by a score of about 21 to 3. So there were clubs around, but I think after after the Knickerbockers played against the New York Baseball Club in June of 1846, they sort of disappeared because there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of evidence that they were very organized, certainly not to the point that they ever played the Knickerbockers again until about 1851 when they reconstituted as the Washington Club and then promptly changed their name to the Gothams. So the Knickerbockers really didn't have anybody to play against between 1846 and 1851. 1851 was their next recorded game against another club, which was the Gothams. I think that you've got to understand, if you really look at the history of baseball, it's a lot older than 1845. Man has this natural tendency to hit a bat with a ball. I mean, to hit a ball with a bat. But there are manuscripts from the Middle Ages that right. show somebody hitting a ball with a bat. So, And there were variations in England. Even the pilgrims brought some variation over with them. It was just getting more organized in, the, in 1845 because it was mainly up until then a children's game. The children played it. But if, if you consider that all these men were living in the city and didn't have a lot of opportunities for good exercise, and this game of hitting a ball with a, a bat gave them that opportunity. And since they were grown-ups, they wanted something a little more organized than what the children would have played. So that's when the game started to mature. But the Knickerbockers did not do it single-handedly. And they've often been given, I think, a lot more credit than the club deserves for sort of inventing the game. They did not. But they furthered the game. I think 
And that's where Doc comes in. It was about a little over 20 years ago, I met a man, Fred Ivor Campbell, who I'm sorry to say has now passed away, but he was certainly one of the finest baseball historians I've ever met. And we didn't have a long conversation, but I mentioned Doc Adams. And he said straight out to me, he said, well, you know, Doc saved baseball. And I said, what on earth do you mean? I thought it, thought it was kind of funny. And he said, well, between 1846 and 1851, it was Doc who made the players show up at the field for play and practice. He said, otherwise, nobody showed up. And if you read the Sporting News interview from 1896, Doc, Doc addresses that issue of going to the field for practice and only two other players would show up. And so for Doc as president of the club, it was up to him to get people to show up. And that's what he did between 1846 and 1851 when they finally had the Gothams to play against. It, was, it fell to Doc, just the way there wasn't any commercial enterprise in New York making bats and baseballs. So Doc had to make the balls by hand and he supervised the manufacture of the bats. He'd go around to various furniture turners and he'd choose the wood and he'd stand over them and watch them turn the wood so they'd get the right length and diameter that Doc wanted. He really loved the game. He made people show, show up and he provided the equipment. You that know, is equipment. absolutely fascinating to me that he made the balls and, and supervised the bats. And like you said, it wasn't he invented, it was evolving, but he certainly furthered that cause. And to go along with that, I know that he also was wrote down the first, I guess, rules, or they call laws of, of baseball. No. Still the the, uh, the the Knickerbockers, when they founded in 1845, had their own set of rules. I think there were 21 of them. Yes. But only something like 14 had anything to do with playing the game. A lot of them were rules of decorum and club dues and things like that. I know. Well, this was this was gentlemen, but they wanted to be organized. So when you talk about the laws of baseball, that didn't happen until late 1856, when there were then about 15 clubs playing in New, between Brooklyn and New York City. And it was suggested by the Knickerbockers at their meeting in December of 1856, and probably Doc made the suggestion, that they call a convention for all the clubs in New York and Brooklyn for the following year to get together and settle all the different issues of how to play the game. Because every club, they'd all get together and everybody had different sets of rules. And because Doc was the president of the most senior club, it fell to him to write down the rules, which he did. And it was presented to the convention at eight, in 1857. Doc was, a, was elected president of the convention as well. And he presented these rules to the club. They were discovered, and that's another story in and of itself. And they sold at auction, is Doc's handwritten laws of baseball, sold at auction in 2016 for 3.26 million. Wow. At the time, it was the third highest paid for any sports memorabilia, and it was the second highest paid for any baseball memorabilia. We keep getting beaten out by Babe Ruth shirts. How many shirts did that man have? 
because another one just sold last year that that eclipsed the 3.26 million. I mean, that man must have put on a different shirt for every game he played. I've never seen anything like it. Well, but I was outbid for those rules by uh, by about uh, 3.1 something million dollars. But so was I. So was I, Lynn. <laughs> Believe me, at 11 o'clock that night, I'm still looking under the couch cushions for <laughs> any change I can dig up. <laughs> but one of the great things about that, Jeff and Len, is that uh, Margie has seen that, but it was like that funny lined paper we all had in grammar school, and here it's Doc's handwriting in pencil, I believe, right? Yes. Uh, and yep. it's, it's, it's on that cheap paper from grammar school, in lead pencil, handwritten, $3.2 million. Yeah, well, it was Doc's laws that made the find so valuable. But there were two other documents that were sold with them that was the progression of the laws, including the final version. But it was docs that made it important because in there for the first time was 90 feet between bases, and that was docs' calculation. Right. And I will let others who understand all these rules better than I get into that end of it. That's not my department. But it was the first time that gambling was a rule. And you couldn't gamble if you had anything to do with the game in any way whatsoever. So I don't want to hear anything about a certain person who should be in the hall. Because it's a very old rule. It's a very old rule. It wasn't not only just 90 feet. It was nine innings and nine men per, yes. per yes. team. Yes, but, but what we're learning is... The nine innings was pretty much what they were doing anyway, although there was a faction in the Knickerbockers that wanted seven innings and seven men. But they were overridden by Doc and another member, William Grinnell, who wanted nine men, nine innings. So really what a lot of the laws were, and I don't want to give Doc more credit than he deserves, but they were a combination of a lot of rules that they were already playing by. But the 90 feet, that is Doc. Creating the shortstop position is Doc. That's what he get credit for. Could you explain how he invented the shortstop position? Sure, will do. First of all, the, the ball that he played with, and I have an 1857 here, and this is a modern baseball. So you can see the difference here. Yes. The ball that he made was very light and was very spongy. They didn't last long. So you could throw it quite a, you could bat it quite a distance. You just couldn't throw it very far. So really the shortstop position was really a practical position to bring a player in between center field, between the outfield and the infield. It wasn't, he didn't stand as close to second base as he does now. It was a little further out to act as a relay position into the infield and he first occupied that position in 1850 although it does show up in 1849 so pick what year you want 1849 1850 and he also says in the uh, sporting news interview that he was the first to occupy it and he did create it thank you derek cheater you you can you can write me a letter anytime you want and thank me <laughs> Yeah, Derek, Ozzie Smith, owes. you know, let's keep going. You know, how many are there? Exactly. How many are there who owe their plaque in the Hall of Fame to Doc Adams? Right. That's true. There have been some incredible center field, uh, center field, just shortstops, like you just said, Ozzie Smith and, 
and, uh, and Phil Rizzuto yep. and, uh, and Derek Jeter and all that, on yep. and on and on. That's, well, it's a pretty important position. It's an extraordinary <laughs> important position, shortstop. Is, is, it's amazing that one person invented that position. That, that's remarkable. You know, one of the things that, from doing some research for this interview, it seems to me that Doc Adams it was very strong-willed because the things that he believed in were made part of the game. The not uh, what what is it called? A pegging couldn't uh, throw at a runner. Plugging. Plugging. It's right. called plugging or soaking. Actually, and I'm sure Doc approved of it, but that had already been part of the Knickerbocker rules before Doc joined the club. That you can't do it? You cannot do it. There's a reason for it. Keep in mind, children really played baseball up until the oh late 1700s, early 1800s. So you can hit a child with a ball. A child can throw a ball at another child and hit them and probably not do a lot of damage. But you can't have grown men doing that. Plus, it made the game less manly. And they were all about fair play and making the game more manly. And he also didn't like the fact that you could catch it on a bounce, right? Absolutely, yep. And he tried to eliminate that rule. And the 1857 convention that I referred to a minute ago, they convened again in 1858. And they decided that they would then be called the National Association of Baseball Players. And Doc was chairman of the rules committee every year until he retired. And that was the one rule he really wanted to eliminate, which is called the bound game. And it did not pass until 1865 after Doc retired. But again, referring to the Sporting News interview, he says, and he talks about it in there, of how he wanted this rule to change and how he had said in his very last speech before the committee, that it would change, and fairly soon. He knew that the days were numbered. Part of it was, and Pine Tart probably understands this as much as anybody, it's very hard on the hands to catch a ball on the fly. You can risk a lot of damage. And a lot of these clubs that were part of this, this new association, there were a lot of young members members who had not played the game a very long time and didn't have the practice of catching a ball on the fly. So it was sort of a matter uh, of physical self-preservation that there was so much resistance to passing the bound game. It was to, to reduce hand injuries because they weren't wearing any gloves. Gloves didn't exist. Gloves didn't come in until the mid seven. They were catching these things barehanded Pine tar will tell you it's not easy to catch it on the fly. So that's why the bound rule was as long, uh, was around as long as it was. There was a lot of resistance because they thought the fly game made the game more manly. So, yes. You referred to the Sporting News interview, which I want to tell people if they want to read it, it's at, uh, it's on your website, docadamsbaseball.org. Yes, which is a perfect opportunity to say that our petition is also at docadamsbaseball.org. We have an online petition to help us get Doc into the hall. It is absolutely secure. We do not farm names. We do not sell them. We will not contact you. 
You do it in complete privacy. We, we paid extra for that, boys and girls. <laughs> so please, I hope everyone will sign our petition if you agree that he should be in the Hall of Fame. There is a tab on the website that says our petition. Just go right there and it's, yep. it's right there and just fill it out. And I can thank Roger Ratzenberger for our wonderful website. Yes. We would not have it if it weren't for Roger. He should be in the Hall of Fame. I, yes, I, Roger I, should I, be. <laughs> and yeah. so should Doc. Yeah. Just really, I mean, he's one of the founding fathers of baseball. There's no baseball the way we know it without him. So, anyways, Leonard, and I think that what, what had happened, it's, it's, Marjorie is always very cautious and it's, it's rough, but just before they found the laws of baseball that he had and written, he had that last opportunity to be voted in and he missed by Marjorie was like two votes or one vote or yep. silly. Yep. Go ahead with that story and, and how they just missed. And if it was just a little bit later, I think he would have been in. Yeah. Well, actually I'm going to speed ahead about six weeks after the vote was taken in, in December of 2015. I got an email from somebody I trust who said, you're going to get an email from this person I know you won't recognize the name, but open it. You won't regret opening this email. And I said, okay. And 10 minutes later, there was that email. And it was from someone who said he had something interesting that he wanted to show me. And John Thorne knew all about it. And of course, that was good enough for me. Long story short, I went to an undisclosed location because I did sign a confidentiality agreement and it's still in effect. And I walked into a conference room and there were about 13 pieces of paper stretched out on the table, very old pieces of paper. And the first three pieces of paper, I looked at them and I went, that's Doc Adams's, that's Doc Adams. That's Doc's handwriting. It was the laws of baseball. It was the originals. It was before they went up for auction and this was the man who had bought them at a Sotheby's auction in 1998, along with some other papers that were his primary interest. And so I sat with him for about an hour. I got to hold the laws of baseball in my hand. Some of my tear stains might be on them because mm. I'm thinking, oh God, why didn't you do this a year ago? I mean, the vote was five weeks before this meeting and he was very sweet. He apologized. He said, yes, I wish I had done this a couple of years ago because he knew about the vote. And so I did get to see them. And, and then, of course, then they sold in April, the following April, for $3.26 million. And so anyway, but I did see them on display at the Library of Congress two years ago. Wow. They were part of the Baseball Americana exhibit. They didn't show all of them. They showed a representation of the pages. The whole story of the laws of baseball is absolutely fascinating. Not just what Doc wrote, but the other two succeeding documents that were part of this package. And I would suggest, and we have it all up on our website, you can find out a lot about it there because it's a fascinating story. After everything that we know now about Doc Adams, there's no reason why maybe back then when the vote was taken, those two dissenting votes didn't know enough. But now, with everything we know and, and the history that's been written, there is no reason why he should not be in the Hall of Fame. 
I couldn't agree with you more, Len. And the ballot he was supposed to. I was hoping to get him on this year's early baseball era ballot. That's what I've been gearing up for all year. And then in August, it was announced because of COVID-19, they were postponing it a full year. So now I have to wait another year to see if I can make this happen. Because they changed. If I don't make it happen next year, the next vote, the next ballot that qualifies won't come out again for another 10 years. The Hall of Fame has changed the intervals for these early ballots. Mm. I understand why there just isn't the interest. You know, the the, the Derek Jeters of this world are going to generate more interest than dear old Doc and some of the other 19th century players who deserve some recognition, but Doc first. Right. And, and and I was thinking about this earlier when I wanted to speak to you. We live in a world where everything is so instant and we, you know, we want answers right away. But this is a history. This is where it started. And people really should know about this. And, you know, I, I'm with you. He should be in the Hall of Fame. I see that on your website the next vote well, next year for the 2022, I guess, induction ceremony. And yes. he really should be up there for that. About five years ago, I was in Gettysburg for the two-day vintage baseball festival that's held out there every year. And I got there a day early because I wanted to take the tour, the bus tour of Gettysburg because I'd never been before. And we got to Little Round Top and I'm sitting at the front of the bus so I can hear the guide well. And I had noticed some guy had gotten on in the back of the bus with a Boston cap. I'm going to forgive him for it, but... (laughs) But uh, he had gotten on on the bus, and I'm sitting up in the front. So we get to Little Round Top, and the the guide is talking about Doubleday. And this goober in the back of the bus says, is this before or after he invented baseball? So, of course, Marjorie, who has no filters anymore, (laughs) shouted for the entire world to hear, Abner Doubleday had nothing to do with baseball. That myth was debunked in 1940. And everybody just looked at me. I thought the guide was going to throw me off the bus. I really did. I really did. So I'm not shy. I'm not shy. No, that's terrific. You know, it's it's amazing. When, when Pintar said to us that there was the, the you know, the great-granddaughter of one of the founding fathers of baseball... I right away was starting to do the math. And I, you know, the first thing you think, right, Pintar, you're shaking your head, right? The first thing you think is, but how old she must be. And yes, I, I'm 102. Don't I look great? <laughs> you look fantastic. Only backlighting from now on. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's, well, it, I'll tell you how it happened. Yeah, please. I'll tell you how it happened. Doc did not marry until he was 47. And my great-grandmother, his wife, was 16 years his junior, and it was quite a love match. They had two children while they still lived in New York, and neither of them lived. Their first child that survived was when they had moved to Ridgefield, Connecticut, where they had four children. And my grandfather was the youngest, born when Doc was 60, and he was born in 1874. Then my father was the youngest in his family, and I'm the youngest in our family. 
So that's why Doc is only my great grandfather. I think it's fantastic. And it's great well, that way too. But I like to say like baseball, everybody thinks baseball is so old and yet it is old. It's established. But yet, I mean, just saying that we've got the great granddaughter of the, a founding member of baseball, not great, great, not great, 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 but just the great. It did work out that way, but still it shows us that, you know, history is right, right, right to here with us. Well, you know, I'm going to tell you another story because you talk about baseball history and Doc, it almost didn't happen. Among the family letters, I have one from his father to Doc, written in March of 1845. Keep in mind that Doc would join the Knickerbockers about seven months after this letter was written. And his father talks in there about, I'm glad you did not accept the position of going to Springfield. I think it's best you stay in New York with your (laughs) current course of action. I don't have the letters that preceded it, but obviously Doc had been offered some sort of job that would have required him to move to Springfield, Massachusetts. And he had already decided not to accept it. So we can't know, of course, but imagine what course baseball might have taken, if any, if Doc had taken that job in Springfield. And so I, I, and that to me is what makes history so interesting. It's the little things that history turns on. It's not the bigger gun that somebody has. It's the message that the general didn't get because the courier lost it or didn't get there in time. It's the little things that, that history turns on. Like one time, I think as the story goes, Marjorie might remember this one. They uh, looking for rubber, Indian rubber, trying to make the baseballs. Of course, they, you couldn't go to a store and get them. And I believe they tripped across, came across some German man that had rubber boots. They bought the boots, cut baseballs. Well, according to the family, Doc would get the leftover galoshes from his friends and cut up the rubber into strips to make the baseballs. He, He was taught by a Scottish saddler who lived in lower Manhattan Island how to wrap everything and stitch it the way you would for a horse whip. And so it was this Scottish Saddler that showed Doc how to make the baseballs. And I have a recording of my grandfather talking about his childhood in in Connecticut. And he talks about in the 1880s, Doc making baseballs for him and his friends and Doc playing baseball in the backyard with his sons and their friends. And even in his seventies, and I quote, impressing the boys with his batting, unquote. Nice. Now, the, the other thing I want to ask you, you found out really, I mean, you always knew you had this baseball history, but it's really later in life that you found out how important Doc Adams was to the game. Yes. So, and, and now you're called baseball royalty and, and, and everything. And, and believe me, we... Yes. I'm practicing the wave. <laughs> but... There are other people who are descendants of, you know, famous players. And I'm just wondering, this might be a reach, but like, for instance, Babe Ruth's daughter, different, you know, there's different people. Have you had the opportunity to meet any of these people that may also be considered uh, baseball royalty? Oh, I've been in touch with 
one of Babe Ruth's granddaughters, Cindy. We've been in touch on Facebook. But no, I've not met her. That'd be fun. Yeah. I can ask her where they where all the other shirts are. Let let's get them all out there and get them dead. I'm kidding. I'm sorry. That sounds like sour grapes, and I don't mean it to be. No, no, you were joking. That's fine. We know. It's just That's every time it's Babe Ruth, it's a shirt. What happened to his pants or his hat? You know, it's always a shirt. Yeah, pants. It's just a little. Irish humor. I can't help it. It's the black Irish in me. You know what? That's so funny because it's like with uh, George Washington. It's like, boy, that guy slept in a lot of places, didn't he? Yeah, he slept around. Slept around. <laughs> so it's the same thing. That same thing. And that old silver dollar across the Potomac. <laughs> you know, guys, you gentlemen said something like you were kind of alluding to okay, baseball royalty, we say that, and, you know, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, I want to say that Cranky deserves a lot. Yes, you know, it's her great-grandfather that did all this. But she's more than just hung around for the ride. I mean, as somebody who just loved the game and has watched, I was there the first, I met her years ago, we were in Hartford, Connecticut, and I think this was kind of a lot of her being pulled into it at that time, and she's so developed with so much of, of, of the, the knowledge and then actually just promoted things in such a way. And today I know her, like when I was telling you gentlemen, like you got to go cranky and she's great on the radio. And, and when you go to the games, I'm like, much better on the radio than I am on a zoom. Believe oh, me. you stop it. No. And we even have down in long Island. It's the doc Adams festival. She comes with a nice display and she's got even pictures of the buttons, the Knickerbocker buttons and certain things. And she gives a history lesson impromptu right there to anybody. To anybody who will listen. Well, so we my will point listen. is she is she is qualified. She and is we're, qualified. And we're on Long Island. When is this? Let's do it. It's an old Beth page. Okay. Yeah, Beth Leonard page wouldn't know where that is. And it's the first weekend in August. Well, okay. it's we'll, a lot of fun. We'll be there. Yeah, oh, we will definitely be there if they're, if hopefully. It's Saturdays and Sundays. Nice. And I, last year, I only went for the Saturday. You know, all that traveling on the ferry and lugging all this stuff and then the hotel and all that. Ay, 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 ay. So, but I'll be there on the Saturday. That's for sure. Pintar, why, why do you call her cranky? I have oh. to know. Everybody's got a nickname. Out yet, Len? What's wrong with you? You haven't figured it out yet? <laughs> Boy, I'm really selling you a bill of goods, guys. <laughs> she's, okay. she's behaving tonight. Yeah, I'm being very good. I'm being, you know, I'm being very good tonight. <laughs> but you know, the other part of that, it's kind of funny, is a crank in the early days of baseball was a fan. She's a tremendous baseball fan, so she's really a tremendous crank. And if you get her on the wrong day, she might be cranky. There you go. If, if the shoe fits, wear it. <laughs> but, you know, Cranky, I did ask both these gentlemen, and next year they've got to come to Long Island, I told them yep. in the previous, and Gettysburg, and we're going to rope them in. They're going to do some interviews, see some great stuff. But you know that when you're going to Long Island or anything, I will be the one taking care of your load, not doing it anymore. You you, you surprised me the last time. I'll help. Well, I'll or better That'd yet, be great. I'll help. You will love Old Beth Page. It is more fun. Of course, now that I know a lot of people, I get to see a lot of my buddies. You know, if I had ever thought for one second about getting Doc into the Hall of Fame 40 years ago, 
I should have because I'm surrounded by all these men. But now it's much too late for me. So <laughs> I, just wish I'd start, I just wish I'd started this 40 years ago. I'm surrounded by men. I don't have any women friends anymore. Just, just men. <laughs> I love it. Are you kidding? <laughs> oh, to, oh, to be 40 years younger. <laughs> and I a lot of guys are. look out for her. I, you definitely are, your 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 attitude and your your personality are, are definitely forty years younger. So well, you're the best. So it's Audrey, bedtime. So we're 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 cutting it awful close. Before we let you go, I I, I want to know more about Doc. I, he was not just a physician, a ball player, but he was also a bank president. Yes, they retired to Ridgefield, Connecticut, in 1865. He became an absolute pillar of his community. He gave up medicine, and I have a feeling he never, his heart was never really in the medicine. I think that was his father's influence. His father's been a doctor. And I don't think he had much choice. His father told him to be a doctor, so he became a doctor. In any case, they moved to Ridgefield in 1865. He became very active in the founding of the Ridgefield Library. He was the first treasurer. And when they were gathering all the books, they stored them in Doc's attic. He was a member of the Land Improvement Association. And then in 18, I think 1875, he was elected the first president of the Ridgefield Savings Bank. And he served as president of the bank for 15 of the next 18 years. The bank still exists as the Fairfield County Bank now, and his photograph still hangs in the main office of the, of the Fairfield County Bank. And then he retired for, for real this time to New Haven, Connecticut in 1888. They moved the whole family to New Haven. It's because my grandfather and his older brother were at Yale, and it was very expensive for the family to have two sons at Yale. So it was cheaper to move the whole family to New Haven so the boys could live at home. Plus, Doc could keep an eye on his two sons to make sure they were studying hard enough. And while we're on the subject of Yale, in 1888, Doc was asked to write a little autobiography for a Yale alumni bulletin. He didn't mention baseball, but I, if I leave you with any quote at all to really know what Doc was all about, there's one line in there where he says, my marriage was the crowning achievement of my life. Wow. So anyway, that, that sort of tells you what you really need to know about the man. Well, I want to ask you one more question. I don't know if you've been asked this before, but if Doc was to be with us today, somehow he saw baseball today, what do you think he would think of the game that he helped develop, that he helped invent, that he helped create? I think the only thing that would disappoint him would be all the money. I think that would disappoint him. I think he would love that the game is still going and changing and growing as it needs to. But I think he would be disappointed that there is so much money involved. That's, really the and and the drugs i don't think he'd obviously he wouldn't approve of the drugs the steroids or whatever it is they take and the gambling i think there are some players he would love to meet of course i'd love to have them meet him you know 
Derek Jeter, Ozzie Smith, Phil Rizzuto, even Babe Ruth in his shirts. I hope that answers your question. It does. It does. And, you know, I sometimes wonder what he would think about what I'm doing. He never talked about baseball. We have not one thing in the family that Doc ever wrote about his time in baseball. Mm. I have an essay my grandfather wrote in 1839 talking about his father, but Doc didn't write anything. So I kind of wonder how Doc would feel about my quest for the Hall of Fame. I, I don't know if it would interest him. Mm. I don't even I, think he, I, he would approve. That he was a congregationalist, and I don't think he would have approved. He wasn't boastful. Otherwise, everybody would know about Doc Adams and not Abner Doubleday. Well, we think everybody should know about Doc Adams. And before we let you go, talk about, you know, you want to talk about not just your website, but I think you also have a Facebook page if people wanted to get in touch. Yes, Doc Adams has a Facebook page. You can email me through the website. And Roger reviews them and throws out the silly ones or the nasty ones and passes others on to me. So Doc has a Facebook page and then, of course, our website, docadamsbaseball.org. And please sign our petition. And, you know, Jeff and Len and Pine Tar, I want to thank you for this opportunity to talk about one of my family, fav- one of my favorite family members. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. And well, we've enjoyed having you. It was an absolute pleasure. Well, yeah. thank you, know, you gentlemen. Jeff. What, what, what Cranky was saying there, I, I think there was such a need. We were talking about Doc Adams and why wasn't he really known when he did so much and you start to look at the plaque at the, the Hall of Fame and he was a proper Victorian gentleman and she just laid that out a lot. And he was not boastful. Uh, you look at what he did for giving back to the community. And then at the end, when he, when he wrote down what was really important to him, it wasn't baseball, it was his wife, it was his family. It was his community. You could get just a chill down your spine when you start to think about who this guy really was. Why don't we know him? Because he knew what was really important. But what Cranky's doing, yeah, maybe he would have thought, oh, this is silly. What, what do we need the fame for? Um, because he was that kind of person. But she's doing something that's needed because documented. And she's, you know, it's, I think that uh, he would have maybe, you know, in the grand scheme of things, understood the position of the sport, trying to get it, get it right. Because he did seem to be, somebody who did things right. So it kind of puts it all in, in perspective. What she's done is, is really needful for his oh, yeah. And for her, Doc was just a humble guy that really did some tremendous thing. Here, here's this picture up in a bank. They're thinking, here, there's the guy that kind of started it. No, that's the guy that started baseball. And hey, here's the guy that, you know, there was, there was a lot of other little things in his life. It's kind of amazing. Cranky brings a lot of that to light. It's fantastic. I've been tremendously privileged to get to know her. But to play the game, first of all, then I met this woman. You know, who's that? Oh, that's the great-granddaughter of this guy. And that was years ago, back about 2007. And from that point on, you know, I have learned so much from her. And my experience, my life has been so enriched by the fun part of this game, but also all of this history. It's been priceless. And I do play modern baseball. Modern baseball today in a men's senior league in Connecticut, it just doesn't have the richness, doesn't hold a candle to the old, uh, the old sport that Doc developed. Well, thank you, Pine Tar. That's very sweet. And thank you for telling Jeff and Lynn about me and Doc. 
I appreciate that very much. We thank you. You know, the Baseball Hall of Fame is, it, yes, it has uh, the, great, the great players in it, but it's a museum filled with history. And it would, it, to not have part of the history of the game, whether he would have wanted to be recognized because he was humble, it doesn't matter. It, he's part of the history. And to not have him in there as part of the history is not right. So whether, you know, that's, that's the thing. He is, there's no baseball or the way we know baseball without Doc Adams. Bottom well, line, done. Marjorie, you are fantastic. Oh, thank, thank you. Pine Tar, thank you so much for bringing her on. Uh, thank you, Len. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Pine Tar. Jeff, I, I don't even know what to say after that. Wow. It was such an honor. Such an honor. And we want to thank Pintar for getting, getting her come on our show. Right. And, and should mention, of course, that Pintar was terrific as well. We've been getting a lot of feedback from episode 86 where we had Pintar. People really enjoyed him. So he was terrific to have on as well. Nice surprise guest. Jeff, we're not going to talk much. Just want to say that if people haven't checked out BaseballBBQ.com for the grilling tools and accessories, of course, FifthAndCherry.com for the great cutting boards, and then, of course, there's the baseball, the, the Pandemic Baseball Book Club for the wonderful authors and uh, some of their merch. And before we get to Steve Ray, who, who is just a great guest as well, quick disclaimer, okay? Uh-oh, disclaimer? Disclaimer time, all right? Okay. Jeff, he does say in the interview that Greg Rempe of the Barbecue Central Show, who you know I hold in the highest regard, should have me as a guest on the show. Greg knows nothing about this. He hasn't heard this interview. So prior to this, Greg Rempe did invite me to be a guest on the Barbecue Central Show, and I am extremely honored. More on that at another date, but I just want to say that Steve Ray did not influence Greg's decision to do that. Is that a shameless plug there, Len? It could be considered that. I am the Don King of, of Baseball and Barbecue Podcasts. Oh, well, that's wonderful. And yeah, I'm looking forward for your appearance on, on the Barbecue Central Show. Your face has made an appearance, but now it's going to be your voice. Hopefully I can do you proud. Now, this is part one of Steve Ray. It was such a long interview, such a wonderful interview that we we cut it in two. So this is part one. Listen, enjoy, and we'll we'll speak to you when it's done. If our guest's voice sounds familiar, it's because for a long time he was an embedded correspondent on the Barbecue Central show. But that's not all. He's the owner of Steve Ray's Midnight Oil Service which is also the home of the Owl's Nest Barbecue Supply Shop in Ottawa, Tennessee. The man has made barbecue a major part of his life, and he's also a fan of baseball. He is the perfect guest for our show. This is long overdue. He was on our bucket list of guests, and I am so glad that we finally have Steve Ray on baseball and barbecue. Steve, welcome to the show. Jeff and Lynn, thank you so much. And first of all, let me say I am impressed you pronounced Ultawa correctly. 
<laughs> I've been working all day on that. And that, and that is not a, it's I've not never easy heard thing. of this town before. <laughs> you have? I have I'm not. not. <laughs> it's not really a town, Jeff. It's more of a wide spot in the road. <laughs> well, <laughs> With a gas station right in the middle of it. <laughs> there you go. Look, as long as you, does the gas station have food? No, no, it's, it's an old, uh, it's a, it's a mom and pop. It's a real service station. We work on cars. Gotcha. So you, you can't get any of those service station hot dogs? No, no. Oh, oh, then you do no, need I'm, one. You need one more place in the town. You need food at a gas Occasionally, station. right next door in my barbecue place, you can get some pretty good barbecue. Though. You know what? I saw some of your YouTube videos and you're cooking out there with right outside the shop. Yeah. Looking good. Yeah. We, uh, we do that quite often, and uh, we sit up in the back a lot of times and cook big events. It's, 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 a, it's a hoot. It's, it's a real hoot place. Well, Steve, let's get right into you. Like I said, I first became aware of you on the Barbecue Central show. We could talk about that later, but I want to find out about how did you get started in, in barbecue? You, didn't, uh, you, you started with the service station, right? Correct. And then what led you to then put in barbecue? Well, I've, I've owned the service station 38 years. Uh, needless to say, I'm, I'm ingrained in my community. The, the story is the not unlike a lot of people. Uh, one Sunday afternoon, I was on the couch. The weather was terrible outside. I was watching, thumbing, flipping through the channels, came across barbecue pitmasters. I watched it for a second, then went on by. Then I came back to it, and it kind of caught my imagination. And I uh, ended up watching it for about three hours. They were running one of those marathons. And I said, this is incredible. This, these guys are smack talking, eating food, cooking food, having a good time. I said, I could, I could really get into that. Next day at the gas station, all my buddies come in the morning. And one of my friends was a barbecue person. And I said, have you ever been to a barbecue contest? He said, yeah. I didn't even know they existed. I, was, I, I had no idea. And so we, right then we formed a team. I was in this barbecue. Went out and bought a smoker, practiced. Went to uh, Cleveland, Tennessee that summer and competed in our first, our first event. And it was, it's been a blast ever since. That was 2013. And it's been a blast ever since. So you went, so you watched the TV show, which mm-hmm. I love that show as well. And, and so many people have seen it. And you just decide, hey, looks good. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to start barbecuing. And you right. have become, uh, and, and then you competed. And that's, that is really amazing. We went to the first the first contest there in Cleveland. I, I got to meet Myron Mixon was there, John Trigg was there, Donnie Bray was there. All the all wow. the big people were there. We were we were competing in the backyard division. A friend of mine here in Chattanooga is is Myron Mixon's pit runner, TJ Wehunt. And uh, TJ was nice enough to come over and invite us up on the trailer, and uh, we got the first first class tour by Myron. And uh, what a nice fellow! And uh, I mean, I'm, I was hooked. I mean, I was hooked. That was the only contest we cooked as a a backyard team. I said, fellas, if we're going to, if we're going to do this, you know, there's not a big difference between backyard and pro. I said, we should do pro. At the end of that contest, we weren't uh, pro and never looked back. So you formed a team with your friend. How'd you come up with the name Owl's Nest? Well, in Ottawa is Ottawa. The, um, <laughs> a lot of people think that the translation, the Indian translation of Ottawa is Sea Rock City, but it's not. It's uh, Owl's Nest. The community is home of the Udawa Owl High School football team. 
and it's just the it's everybody has an owl. It's just our thing. I collect owls, but so does everybody else collect owls. So it's just it's just our thing in the community, and it made sense. If you lived next door to me, you would say that makes sense. <laughs> you know that's what's great about barbecue because uh, I watched uh, a Met game and said, "Wow, I'd like to do that." And I tried pitching, and uh, yet I was never able to do it. It's nice that we have something that we can watch on TV and take it up and become uh, quite accomplished at it. It's a nice well, that's the, thing. That is the thing about professional barbecue. You can uh, just enter and you can compete against the best that there's ever been the, fir- the first time out. So, and um, you know, I never got that tryout with the Braves down here. So <laughs> barbecue was the next best thing. <laughs> So Owl's Nest make, may make sense. I like to ask all our guests how they come up with their their names for their barbecue teams or, or business. And I saw that you had Jeff Reiser on one of your YouTube videos. And I like how he came up with his name. You know, Dead Broke him, Dead Broke. Oh, that's, that's, that's always, was. always Broke, yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one. That's a good one. There's a, I mean, you know, the, the names of teams have always, sometimes they, they fascinate some people. I don't, I don't find them that fascinating there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just the name, you know, yep. it's, you know, I, I, I like the ones that kind of push the edge, like grill on grill action, Matt Pittman's or Matt, <laughs> Matt, Matt Frampton's, I'm sorry, Matt Frampton's team. Uh, you know, they kind of push that envelope a little bit. I never, I was never ballsy enough to do that. Those guys that do it, I, I really admire. Yeah. My, my my team. Com- I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Len. In competition, okay. do you have to have a team name? I, everybody does. I mean, I guess you could be Steve Ray, but that's not very cool, you know, because we have stickers on our, our, our trailer. We have a trailer, and we, we got the, the logo on it, and uh, it's kind of our identity. Got it on our shirts. It's, it, yeah, you ought to have a name. Yeah, it's like horse racing. You, yeah. You're not going to just put out a horse number one or something. My barbecue competition team is called Burnt Ribs. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, see? Burnt Ribs. Burnt ends. Burnt, burnt food. Burnt up. <laughs> There's all there's all of them out there. It was either that or dried out brisket. I I, I have to, <laughs> you know have to determine which one to use. But now the first smoker that you guys bought, what was it? <laughs> this thing we went to a uh, <laughs> it's great. Uh, we went to this place down over in um, Red Bank, Tennessee, which is just across the river. And this guy sold uh, trailers, and he had three smokers. And they were these, it's a real, it was a real weird looking thing. It was a triangular shaped thing with a flat top and the firebox was in the back and the, it had a big door that lifted up on the front. The door was huge and you could cook a ton of meat on it. You know, we figured at a barbecue contest, you know, you'd be cooking a bunch of food. We didn't realize even what it was. We bought that. I think it was $895 and we bought it because we could pull it behind the truck and <laughs> That thing leaked like the Exxon Valdez. You couldn't, you couldn't keep a fire going. All right, you couldn't keep the box hot. You had to have a fire that was about two thousand degrees and up to two hundred and fifty inside the, inside the smoker. And the first time I, uh, I brought it home, we took, we put it in the backyard, and I read somewhere to uh, season it with lard. So I went to the store and bought real lard in in the plastic jug, and I smeared it all over this thing, and, and and I built a fire, but I built a fire underneath the, um, it had a charcoal bed. So I put a charcoal bed in it and I was mowing grass and, and I, my, something caught my eyes. My wife coming out of the house, waving her hands. 
the smoker was on fire. I had put so much charcoal in it. I looked at the thermometer, ran over there and looked at the thermometer. And it, it, it goes up to like 600 and it was buried. It was probably, you could probably see this thing from space. And so I had to get the hose out to spray the tires because the tires were getting so hot, they were getting ready to blow. So I had to cool the tires on. It burnt up all the wiring to the lights. And then I finally had to open the door and put the fire out with the hose. So you could see I was a, I was a rookie from day one, knew nothing, about, <laughs> knew nothing about cooking or smoking or even how to season a thing. You know, it's funny because mentioned to a couple of people that you have the gas station and then inside, you know, you have the, where you sell all the barbecue equipment and, and everything. They said, well, that's an interesting combination. I started out real small. I took one corner of our sales room. I brought, I called up David Boston. I said, Hey David, do you think I could sell some rubs here? Would you sell me? He goes, sure. So I bought some rubs from him, put them on a little shelf in the corner, sold them and, and, and they sold really well. People would just come in and they were sitting there watching TV, waiting for their car to get fixed, waiting for the tires to be put on. And, uh, we'd start talking barbecue. They'd buy, pick up a, a thing of, of a rub, you know, they come in there and pay for their oil change or tires and their two things of uh, butcher barbecue. <laughs> private seasoning, private blend, and um, off they went. And it just it just grew. It literally grew from a corner until it, it it takes over the whole entire store. And we're we're looking at expanding already. So it's uh, it's been a real good business for us. It's it's. I don't know if I could make a living doing at it at this level. You'd probably have to ramp it up a little bit, but it does well. It it does it does okay. I have to tell you. I'm a, a big listener of the Barbecue Central show. Love mm-hmm. the embedded correspondence segment. Always really enjoyed your, your take on things. Always enjoyed when, when you had to come up with, you know, questions or things that, you know, how we'd go around and, and ask if there was something that you were concerned about or that you wanted to discuss. I always thought that you put a very good topic out. Whatever you were saying, I respected. And then, and, and actually one time, I think you even hosted the show. Twice. Right? When I'm, Greg, I'm the only person other than Greg that's ever hosted the show. Yeah. And that's, and for him to I'm hand I'm very that proud over, of that. Very yeah, proud that's, of that. I don't think he hands it. Well, obviously he doesn't hand it over to just anybody. So I'm sure not going to hand it over to Doug. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I'm not getting baited into anything here. But what I'm going to ask you is you left the Barbecue Central show. Yeah. Okay. Why, why'd you leave? I, you know, I just, I thought I, I thought I'd gone about as far as I could go with it. Greg is, I mean, he is, he's, he was my mentor. He, he helped me in every way he could. Um, I gave him 110%, you know, back. I just, I wanted to concentrate on my deal. I, you know, I wanted to be the star for lack of a better word. Not that I am, but um, it was just time to step out. I I did it for about a year and a half. And I tell you, I I will say this fellas, I, I have nothing but the utmost respect for Greg. He, um, the first time I listened to his show, I've done radio here in Chattanooga for 22 years on, on the air. My show is actually on the radio too. We simulcast. And, but I did a car show for, for 21 years here in Chattanooga. And, uh, the first time I listened to Greg on the internet show, I said, this guy is serious about what he does. And you can tell. I mean, he is, he is heads and shoulders above everybody. And I mean, everybody, and I'm not, that's not a slam on you guys. No, He is just so good in production, 
quality of sound. Uh, nobody can touch him. And uh, I don't think anybody will ever touch him because I think if anybody gets close, he will ramp it up again. And I, I think there's more. I think there's more in store for Greg Rempe in barbecue than he's doing right now. I believe that this he's going to turn a corner one of these days, become a uh, a, a an uh, over the telestial uh, airwaves, and uh, have a show somehow. I really do believe that. If he wants one, if he if he wants one, agree a hundred percent. I've always said that if we were to get just you know, 10% of the what he does or be able to do 10% of oh, that, no. we'd be doing quite well. But the, the thing is now, you have your YouTube channel, you have your podcast. The show gave you a lot of exposure. Mm-hmm. Do you miss that? On Greg's show? The exposure oh, no, no. That you received. No, I don't, I don't miss that. I don't, okay. uh, you know, it, it was fun. It was, it was a lot of fun, but, um, mm-hmm. There's other things that are fun too. Uh, what, oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, what I do on my show is fun. No, I don't miss it. Yeah, no. The reason that I'm asking is because I would go back like, tomorrow. And let me just be honest. I would go back tomorrow. Greg, please call me. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if the the only reason that I'm asking is because we know with this show, the exposure that we get, whether it's Jeff, you know, Jeff gets invited on a lot of podcasts to 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 be a guest on a lot of shows for oh. some reason. I, I don't know why they don't ask I wouldn't me say a lot, number one. Number two, it's only baseball related because Len, uh, let me tell you this, Steve, Len knows a lot more about barbecue than I do. So I, I, I know. Which one, which one of you two has been on Greg's show? That would be Leonard. Oh, I haven't been on his show. He's he's mentioned my show on his show. But he hasn't so invited you on his show. No, no, no. I have not gotten an invitation yet to be on his show. But What's uh, he waiting for? But he has shown his picture. Yes. Oh, <laughs> he did. Yes, because he sent me uh, a pandemic face mask, and um, <laughs> and I wore it proudly. And he did. And I sent in a photo, and he did have me. So I guess I was technically my face was on his show. Yeah. My eyes, my eyes, and my hair, because the rest of me was covered, which which is probably a good thing. Well, he uh, should have you on. He 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 should have you on. Well, you know what? That's. If he wants to invite me on, uh, you know, I bowl on Tuesday nights, but, <laughs> but I, but I'd go on right after. So <laughs> but it, what's your team? What's your bowling team name? Ballers or something like that? Yeah, no, we're called this year. At least we're called the big swigs, the big swigs, Yeah, the big swigs. That's cute. That's cute. Ours, ours was called French fry fingers. Ah. Uh, <laughs> gotcha yeah it's a handicap league and uh which is good because my being on the team might be a handicap but anyway <laughs> besides that all right we got that out of the way now well, let me let me ask this thank you Steve. you have i'm looking at your youtube channel you have um, a plethora of videos here which is, is great a lot of long form interviews and a couple of short ones of you know snippets of of interviews or, or kind of like I saw one, you're making a, a, a dipping sauce was like a couple of minutes long. So, yeah. and you, you crack them out. I mean, you do what, how many do you put out a week? Well, I do. I, I put every show on, on the YouTube channel. Every time we do a show, I put it on the YouTube channel. And when we're goofing off at the station, we, uh, I'll video it. I'm, I'm really interested in, in the video part. I've got, I bought a couple neat little cameras and, uh, I, I'm trying to get better at editing. I'm not very good. But um, it's that's hard. Editing is is hard, 
and I'm not good at it, but uh, I do my best and it entertains me. You can see I've only got 286 subscribers. We don't, we're not, we're not setting the woods on fire, but you know, Hey, whatever, you know, what I, what I do really isn't YouTube friendly. People don't turn to YouTube for interviews. They turn to for how to advice. Right. And I'm big on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm big on Facebook. Well, I want to ask you also, what's with the pierogies are coming? Oh man. Have you ever had a pierogi? I probably. Where do you, where do you, where do you, where do you guys live at? Yeah, we're uh, in New York. We're on Long Island. I have definitely had a pierogi. Yeah. Yes. My, I grew up, my mother's from, um, uh, first generation American, her, her, my grandmother and grandfather were from Poland. Growing up, I had pierogies. It was just like you had pierogies, you know, it wasn't a, a big deal. And the further South we moved, we moved from Richmond, Virginia to Knoxville. Uh, the further South you get, the fewer people have ever heard of this food and not have food and friends would come over and mom would fry them up. You know, they, what are these things? They were pierogies. And so it became kind of a joke. Everybody would go to Steve's house for his mother's pierogies. And I love them. And I learned, I learned to make them. I don't make them as good as my mom, but um, I'm going to have her. She's, she turned 88 yesterday. God bless. And I, and I'm coming, she's coming down this Sunday with my sister and I'm going to have her, my sister, my wife, my daughter, my two, both of my daughters, her two granddaughters. And I'm going to film her teaching them how to do pierogies in our kitchen, you know, sort of a, uh, a, a testament to her. Have you, um, and something fun, I think some people will enjoy. You know, that's the thing about this barbecue thing. It's it it got me interested in cooking other things. Uh, I never I never cooked before I got into barbecue fellas. I wasn't even king of the grill. If, if we had steaks, my wife said, We're having steaks, you want to cook them? I go, nah, go ahead. You know, I, I wasn't interested at all in food except to eat it. And uh this is one thing that I think that, that's good that's come out of the barbecue is maybe interested in uh in food different types of food, making food. You know, I've made pierogies a bunch of times since I've started this. Just, you know, kind of a, you know, they're good and I can make them myself. So. You know, it's amazing to me that that it's taken this many years and it was watching a show and to get your interest in yeah. cooking in barbecue. I mean, it's really, it's fascinating. You know, when I was a kid, my dad would grill. We had well, at one time we had a charcoal grill. I don't think he liked that too much. I think, you know, making the fire and everything. And of course, he used the lighter fluid. Mm-hmm. It was a little kettle grill. Maybe it was a Weber. Who even knows? And then he, you know, he used a gas grill and he'd make chicken or whatever. And I always wanted to help and stood there watching and maybe he'd let me flip the chicken or whatever. But I think that's where I started to want to grill. But it wasn't until I really met my wife who uh, I guess is considered, you know, a foodie that I really got into cooking. So I guess there's something that, that kind of spurs you, you know, we've had a lot of guests who have talked about that, that there was a moment, there was somebody they knew there was a moment, like you said, the show and all of a sudden something clicks and you just, you end up loving it. Yeah. Uh, My only regret, if I have a regret, uh, in barbecue. My only regret is I didn't find out about this earlier in my life. I was, I was in my, I was 53 or 54 years old when I found out about barbecue and started a team. And uh, I wish I had uh, found out 20 years ago. Right. Because it is such a special thing. It brings people together. It is, it's, it's an incredible hobby. 
incredible business. Uh, you meet the nicest people. People come in the station all the time, heard about the store, come in, want advice, new people, old people. It, it is absolutely wonderful. And the people I've got to meet, people like Greg, Doug Shiding, John Solberg along the way are just having enriched and enhanced my life so much. I wish I would have found out about it earlier so I would have known these people longer. I really do. Not that I'm at the end of the line or anything, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things like, man, I wish I had done that earlier. I know what you mean. You know, Anthony, know what you mean. It's sort of like this podcast. You know, we, I mean, we're doing it now for three years, but I wish that we had started doing it sooner. We talked about it for a long time and until we finally started doing it, because you're right, we meet so many people like you. You know, we, we're meeting you and, and, and you're right, like just the people that we meet. And then, of course, there's the baseball people. That kind of gets us to the next topic that we want to talk about, which is baseball. Jeff, I'm going to, even though we're both baseball and barbecue, I'm going to let you start the conversation with Steve. Talk some baseball. Okay. Steve, you mentioned the Braves. Is uh, that your, your team of choice? Yeah, everybody down here like follows the Braves. You know, especially um, started in 1992 when they got so good. Um, that real they really caught fire here in the South. And uh, you know, it's a funny thing. That my first when I when I went when I started dating my wife in college, I went to pick her up at her house and uh, went upstairs to her house. And uh, her dad was watching television, and this was like on a Friday night, about six or seven. And he was watching the Brave on television. And I said, what are you doing? I'm watching the ballgame. Well, how are you watching? Now, you got to remember, this is 1978, 77, 78. And uh, I said, how are you watching the Braves? He said, we have cable television. I said, what's cable television? And he told me. He said, we get 13 channels. He that said, was a lot. <laughs> I he, goes, he goes, watch this. He turns over to the Cubs game. And I went, oh, my God. Because, you know, then it, usually it was uh, Kurt Gowdy and Tony Kubek on Saturday afternoons at 2 o'clock. Sure and then again, then again, a Monday night baseball, and that was it. I mean, that was it if you were a baseball fan. So I sat down, and our first date was me watching the Braves with her dad. <laughs> that was our first date. We went and got some pizza and uh, came back. And it was, and, you know, it's just I was such a baseball fan. And then I thought, my goodness, you can watch it any time on this cable television. Pay TV is what they called it back in those days. It was wonderful. And I remember when I first got pay TV, uh, the first thing I did was find out where super, you know, TBS, Superstation, and uh, both of them out of Chicago and Atlanta. And it's, it was wonderful. Braves were just, you're right, they, they started getting good in, in the early 90s, and they win 14 Eastern Division pennant, pennant in a row. Yep. And, I mean, the Mets tried to knock them out, knock them out and just couldn't get over that hump. They were so bad for so long, the the Horner years, and 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 you know it's just when they when Sid Breen slid across home plate against the Pirates that night, you could literally hear the people in the neighborhood scream. I mean, it was it was that exciting to know that we beat the Bucks and we're going to the we're going to the series. It was it was amazing. Then the strike happened and we got a little little perturbed with them a little bit and the whole all of baseball, but I'm still a casual fan. I'll, you know, I'll catch a few innings here and there. Right. Right. Yeah. But you, you said that uh, up until you are a fan mostly prior to that strike. 
well, I guess, you know, I guess it's my age too. Uh, you know, as you get a little older, you get, you know, you get interested in more in college football. And, you know, of course, down, down here, that's, that's the big thing is it's college football is on sports radio here 365 days a year. That's, wow. we, we talk it every day and it, it dominates. And with the advent of, of ESPN and they just feed, they just feed the fire, feed the fire, feed the fire. And uh, maybe, you know, maybe that's where my interest had. But as a, as a kid and a young adult, you know, baseball was, uh, was my favorite sport, that and golf, as far as human sports go. And, you know, the funny thing is, I, I played baseball a little bit when I was a kid. I wasn't very good. My fascination, and I was on my high school baseball team, I was the scorekeeper. I loved keeping score. I've got, a, you know, I had the book, you know, keeping averages, statistics, and things of that sort. I still love it. I'll, I still will sometimes, when I sit down to watch a game, I'll grab a, a pad I keep by my by my desk, or in, you know, when I'm watching television, and I'll I'll just keep a couple boxes of uh, scores. It's just, you know, six to four to three, one to two to four, one to two to three, you know, and uh, you know, F seven, F nine, you know, uh, K with a big circle around it. I just I just love doing that. So Steve, don't take this the wrong way, but usually the person that they ask to be the scorer is one of the worst players on the team <laughs> because they're, they're sitting on the bench a lot. <laughs> I wasn't even on the team as a player. I was on the team as the scorekeeper. <laughs> okay. Coach, Coach Grease cut right to the chase. <laughs> he said, we're not giving you a uniform, but I'm going to give you this book, Steve. Because <laughs> of all the, out of these 18 guys, you, you're the only one that understands numbers. <laughs> all right. Well, that's so you can, you can do it. But I loved it. I mean, I didn't, I didn't begrudge it one bit. I, I loved it. I traveled with them and there for two years. We, we had a blast. Steve, you, you mentioned that you had a uh, radio show uh, talking about cars. Do you ever have a uh, sports talk show? No. No, no I hosted, um, co-hosted a couple times uh, in the afternoons with the guys on, on the radio station I was on. You know, they had me in. We'd talk sports. But I'm, I don't know enough the, in the background of sports to, you know, talk. You know, these guys, you know, they, Jeff, they are so smart. The, these sport, the guys on sports radio, they know their stuff. And uh, that's why when you call them, you better, you better have your ducks in a row and you better know your facts because they know them. They know their facts. And if you call in with some BS, stupid comment or something, they'll call you on it. And they, and they should. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're professionals. They, they take a lot of pride in what they do, uh, these guys on the radio. And you may not like them. You may think they're stupid, but they're mo- most of the ones I have met they're pretty doggone sharp. Steve, the trio of Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz, do you think that's one of the best threesomes ever? Well, you left out Avery. Oh, see? <laughs> yeah. See, I couldn't, I couldn't call one of those shows. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, yeah, they were, uh, they, were, they were formidable, especially Bulldog. I mean, you know, he was, uh, Maddox was great. I mean, you know, he was, my, he was everybody's favorite to watch. You know, 83-mile-an-hour fastball, you know, nobody could hit him. You know, he, he, he just goes to show you that there's pitchers and throwers. The and, one uh, thing that Maddox would get criticized a lot about is coming out of games early. Well, he looks like a, a big, a long, a long starter now compared to what they do now. Exactly. That's true. That's, yeah. very, that's very true. Yeah. I mean, you know, he had, they had McMichael coming out of the pen. You know, he was a hard thrower. You know, they had a good pen back in those days. I don't, you know, he, he was great. Yeah. They were all great. Even Glavin, as, as much as I 
bemoan the fact that he couldn't pass up a strike. I, I mean, he's still a great <laughs> pitcher. What about the fact that they only won one World Series? I know. That's a, that's a, a bizarre statistic. As successful as they were, the only, the only time they ever won was against Cleveland. Um, 1995. Yeah. I mean, you know, who can explain it? You know, at least they got one. There's, there's guys that would kill to have one. You know, right. talk to Lou, you know, talk to um, Ernie Banks. Let's play three. Right. You know, yep. never even got there. Never, never got a sniff in, what, 24 years? And our thanks to Steve Ray from – where is he from again? Baltimore, Tennessee. <laughs> I don't know why I'm so good with that. I can say Ottawa, Tennessee. Maybe, maybe that's a place I should live. <laughs> maybe. May we will hear more from him on the next episode. Yes. But now, Jeff, tell us who we have. This is Baseball doesn't have triple headers. They have triple plays. They're rare. But we have a triple play with three great guests. And tell us who our third guest is. None other than Gary Looney, who's actually an employee from the city of Tempe, Arizona, where he's, he works at Angels Camp. I met him out last year. Hell of a guy. Nice guy. Terrific man. And he gave us a report from what's happening in this pandemic spring training season. And it's, you know, it was fascinating. It's a little than last year, of course, because last year when, when spring training was going on, at the beginning at least, there was no pandemic or the pandemic wasn't happening the way it is now. But very interesting to hear his take on things. Enjoy. Enjoy. Gary Looney works for the city of Tempe at Diablo Stadium, spring training home of the Los Angeles Angels. He's worked in that capacity for many years, and we are happy to have Gary back to tell us what spring training is like in 2021. Welcome back to Baseball and BBQ, Gary Looney. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. So, Gary, tell us, first of all, how are you doing this past year? You doing okay? I'm doing fantastic. I haven't been able to get my COVID shot yet because I didn't meet the criteria. However, I got a I got an appointment. I go in tomorrow to get my first shot. So, uh, state of Arizona, the priorities were uh, obviously the uh, essential workers and anybody 75 years and up. And I don't know how we were doing compared to other states throughout the country to get vaccines, but things have started to open up now. But it was. I mean, it was kind of mind-blowing trying to find it. It took me almost three weeks. You'd, you'd go to the site, and for those of us that qualified for 65 and up, you had two locations to go to, and they had all these days uh, available, but they were all blacked out. And mm-hmm. you'd go to a site, uh, and then all of a sudden, a position would open up. So you go to, to try to secure it, and you have all these questions you should have to answer. Then by the time you get to confirm, oh, it's gone. So yeah. then you go to the next location. And so it took me almost three weeks to get it. But oh. uh, luckily, I get the first one tomorrow. So it's going to be nice. That's good. So, But anyway, that, great. I love it. Uh, having my wife home, because uh, she runs the uh, Tempe History Museum. And uh, the museum has been closed since last March. So all their mm-hmm. events have been done, you know, over the internet, uh, yeah. digitally. And But it's nice having her home. All of her meetings she conducts from there, uh, her workers and stuff, they get to work from home. So. Gary, you are at spring training. Last year, there was spring training. Then it had to shut down. Yes. And we know. So this year, it's a totally different spring training. We wanted to have you on because, one, you were fantastic the first time. You're a heck of a nice guy. So this (laughs) is an excuse to have you back. 
But tell us the difference between spring training this year in the pandemic as opposed to last year. Okay. Last year, you know, it was it was basically a normal time. Uh, we had gone through, oh, oh, maybe half a dozen games or so. And then all of a sudden the news hit that, you know, people were getting sick. And the next thing we know, the city had closed down the stadium. So all events in Tempe were closed down. So right in the middle of spring training, it's a dead stop. You just go home and everybody knows what happens. The games continue. This year we came back and we really didn't know what to expect. We didn't get updates uh, as far as things happening until uh, very late in the season. And finally they said, yes, because of Major League Baseball's protocols, they're going to go ahead and go with the spring training. We started uh, about a week and a half ago. Pitchers and catchers came in. But one of the things that was told to us was that there was going to be no fans. And you really don't take that into consideration. It's like, okay, it's not a big deal the first week of spring training because a lot of people are not really there yet. You know, school's still in session on normal days. And the fans that are just diehard fans would be the ones that would show up. The first day I was there, all we had were the coaches. We had some of the staff members and a few of the pitchers and catchers. But I didn't see any of them. Because normally, they would all be in the clubhouse at the stadium, dressing, going through routines, and they would go down to the practice fields. This year, the only ones in the stadium are the coaches and staff. Joe Madden, the manager, he's there. The players are all down in the minor leagues, down in their complex, which is at the extreme other end uh, of the facility. So where I was at the first day, I didn't see anybody. The coaches were already there. They had gotten there like 5, 36 o'clock in the morning. I didn't come in until 7. So I saw nobody. I sat at the stadium by myself for the first few hours. The only ones I would see were maybe some delivery trucks, things of that nature. So now we have the position players in. They too are now all down at the minor league facility. We have no minor league players in whatsoever. So that has been a big issue. We just had a staff meeting last night, and we went over the protocols and what to expect for the upcoming season. Split squads are gone, so they've canceled all the split squad games. So that adjusted the original schedule that we had been given. We were going to have 15 games. We're down to 13 games now. Our first game is going to be five innings, and that's it. And I don't know if that's true throughout the Cactus League as well as the Grapefruit League, or if it's just us. I'm sure it's going to be Cactus League for sure. But so the fans, a lot of them that have gotten tickets don't even know about it. I think a disclaimer is going to be given out for anybody that buys tickets. So that's the first thing, five innings. Some of them, they're going to progress to seven innings. And then I think later on, it's going to be nine. And the reason they're, they're choosing five is because they don't have any of the minor league players there to offset the, the major league players. They're only going to play a couple innings like they normally do. And then the other guys that are on the 40-man roster, They'll fill out the rest of the game, and that's the way that's going to go. We're going to have a limit of 25% capacity of the stadium. As we were having our meeting yesterday, they had the uh, stadium staff in zip-tying all the seats that were not to be occupied. They're up. So they're going to have a row, a row that will not be used, then another row, and then they'll have to be socially distanced in the specific row itself. 
Now, Jeff, if you remember last time you were here, we had in the left field plaza, we had picnic tables and all mm -hmm. the vendors that were out there. Yep. No vendors. So mm -hmm. the beer garden, the pizza maker, the lemonade stand, the cotton candy, all that is gone. The picnic tables have been completely removed. People are not allowed to congregate. Face masks have to be worn. The only time you could take them off is when you're at your seat to eat and drink. You cannot get food and stand around and eat. So you will be in line, distanced, get your food, and then go back to your seat. And that's the only time you're allotted to take your mask off. The team store. The team store is not open to the public. Only ones that are available to go to the team store are the people that have tickets. And they'll only allow six people in the uh, team store itself at one time. So fans that want to get merchandise, they're out of luck. Yeah. Um, and unless they make some kind of change. Now, I'm assuming that's the same at other stadiums, but I did have somebody come by yesterday looking for tickets. And they had told me they had gone to uh, Sloan Field, which is the home of the Cubs. And they said that they're, team store was open. Now, I don't know if that was a local decision, an MLB decision or whatever. Right, they're in Mesa, right? Yes, they are. But, you know, again, it's, and I know our tickets went on sale on Tuesday at 10 o'clock our time. And by 1025, they were sold out. They were gone. Now, Gary, let me ask you this. Last year, when I was there, there was a lot of people watching all the all the drills and looking at the different fields and all the new, you were great answering questions and helping people out. What are you doing now? I mean, there's nobody there, right? That, that's it. There's nobody. Now, we do have staff there, and we're basically positioned. As I said, I worked yesterday at the stadium parking lot. The main parking lot that you would normally come into that would overlook field one where the major leaguers would normally be practicing, that's closed off. So the only, one that's, uh, the only ones that have access to that parking lot right now are the vendors that are setting up for the concessions that will be inside, and the team store. So I was positioned out at the other parking lot at the far end of the, of the stadium where the players would normally park, and I was monitoring you know, people coming in there or trying to come in, the coaches that would come and go. We have people that are down at the minor league facility to control who comes in and goes out there. Then we have people that are stationed on the specific minor league fields where the players all right, but basically all we're doing is we're watching practice because there's nobody there. The, the funny thing about it is the media. They're the ones that have really, besides the fans, if you remember last year when Shohei Otani would come out, we would yeah. have 100 to 200 sure. media guys that were running with their cameras from field to field wanting to get a shot of him. Well, there's no media. We have media credentials for certain individuals, but I think the majority of those are going to be for the air people, the TV people, and things of that nature. So if you remember the, uh, the Buttes Hotel that is behind the stadium, it has the two hills mm -hmm. behind it. If you look on top of the hill, you'll see a dozen. Really? <laughs> oh, the media people are up there with their zoom lens trying to get shots of specific players, and that's it. So it's, there's nothing. So we are basically answering questions for a handful of people that are asking questions about where can I get tickets and, you know, when's the game going to start and can we get in to see the players? But that's it. So there's nothing. There's really nothing going on. Wow. 
Gary, when you arrive to work, do you have to have your, uh, do they take your temperature? Or, they do. Uh, okay. Yes. They have staff there that's there to, to take uh, temperatures of anybody coming in. The way it's set up for the team, they, uh, last year they had Tier 1, Tier 2, and Tier 3 members. Tier 1, basically the players, anyone that has access to the players themselves, they get tested, I believe, it's every other day. Then the tier two are the ones that have access to the clubhouse and access to the players. And that's going to be, I believe, like the assistant general managers, the trainers, things of that. They get tested, I think, every four days. Then the tier three were like photographers, some of the media people, but they were restricted to stadium access, I mean, like into the seats. So they were, they were distanced from the players and, and anybody that had access to them. This year, they did away with the Tier 3. So it's just Tier 1 and Tier 2. And they're the only ones that have access to the field. Now, even like with us, even though we're employees and, and typically have access to the fields, this year we are restricted to where we can go. So we don't have access to the players. But we see them passing by us in our locations where we're stationed on their way to the clubhouse or on their way to the fields and stuff. So I still get to converse with them, get to talk to them, get to meet with them and stuff. But I, you know, I'm distanced away from them and stuff. Mm-hmm. Or if we're going to have any, any contact whatsoever, it's either an elbow bump or a fist bump or something of that nature. But they're all wearing masks when they're not engaged out on the fields and stuff. But when you see them walking back and forth to the clubhouse, yeah, they all have their masks on. Do they, have they said anything to you how, how different it is year over year without having fans hounding them for autographs or, or whatnot? I, I think the thing that they like the most, if you remember, Jeff, they would dress uh, in the players' clubhouse, which is on the first base side of the field, and then they'd walk across the stadium, cross the parking lot, down to the practice fields. Where where the minor league location is, it's directly behind field three. So they're a hop, skip, and a jump away from access to all four fields that they use right now. The batting cages are right there. Their weight room is there. And, and I've asked the coaches, you know, how the players like the access to the fields as well as the accommodations. And they say that they like it uh, much better because of the fact that there's plenty of room for them to dress because there's no minor leaguers there. It takes no more than a minute or two to get to the fields, and they don't have to do that walk across. Now, I think once a game starts and they'll enjoy having the fans back, but still, you're playing before you know, a, a three quarters empty stadium, but at least there will be some kind of activities going on. So a little right. bit back to normal. So it, it is going to be a lot different. It, it, it is definitely weird for us as staff members to have nobody there to monitor, nobody to direct. And I mean, I appreciate having the job, believe mm-hmm. me. I get to watch practice like I did last year, which is was fun watching the drills and stuff for, for me being a baseball fan. Uh, again, I'm a kid in a candy store doing that, but I enjoy the interaction with the fans and, and being able to explain things to them. And, and as I said, you know, last time explaining to them that spring training more than the baseball game, it's the activities of leading up to the drills and the batting practices and, and everything else that these guys do to perfect their trade. So, you know, and, and talking to the coaches today, we are talking about a specific drill that they did and it was like, Oh, thanks for noticing. Cause a lot of times these things just go unforeseen and, and nobody pays any attention to them. Mm-hmm. They could definitely focus more on getting ready probably than in the past. And they focus on it, but they don't have the fans, 
interfering. So they probably do like uh, some of them. I'm sure probably do like it better. Well, it, 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 I'll tell you what, Leonard. It, it, it's kind of a catch twenty two. One thing that I have noticed the last couple of days, well, since the position players have gotten there, in the past they would be done by eleven thirty, eleven forty five. They they usually start eight forty five, eight thirty ish, and they would go till eleven thirty, eleven forty five, and then they'd go to either to the weight room or to lunch. They're not getting out now until, well, let's see, one thirty, close to mm-hmm. two o'clock now. So even the even on the schedule, it's showing lunch as late as one thirty, one forty five. And that's because they don't have the split squads. So a lot of the activities that they might have done in the past on a, uh, on a more general basis, now they have to be more focused. They're doing a lot more live batting practice, which uh, they had not done in the past. They, the guys would have uh, the coaches throwing batting practice to them. Now uh, they had batting practice as well as live batting practice. So the pitchers, because of the fact that you don't have the access to these split squad games, you're going to have to do more activities leading up to all this other stuff because guys are not going to get the reps that they have. I just think about a five inning game, you know, that's, that's less at bats for players. That's less time for them in the field to show, you know, what they can do to the coaches. And so now they have to do it all in the field. And I'm sure a lot of them are saying, Hey coach, can, can we spend some more time out on the field? I see a lot of guys using that, the half field, the infield, the bunts, you know, pickoff plays and things of that nature. A lot more, a lot more going on. So, Gary, give us a uh, a scattering report on the Angels this year. They, uh, I, the last year for Albert Pujols, I think yeah, his wow. wife, uh, his wife announced his retirement at the end of this year. Yeah, uh, because still have still have the best player in in the sport on the planet. You know, Mike Trout, who's who's what just thirty years old coming into yeah, his, he'll, his prime. He'll be thirty this year. Yep. Yeah. He'll, he'll, he'll be in a good mood. He'll be in a, in a better mood now that the baby's born. You know, now he's a father. He can probably concentrate more on baseball than he did last year. Now, the one thing probably for him, having only 60 games last year, it's probably a godsend that he can now concentrate more on it than uh, his wife being pregnant. Their starting lineup, I think, is going to be fine. I, last year is such a misnomer. I you know, the Dodgers win the championship. It's a, to me, it's an asterisk. I look at that 60 games. I remember teams that, you know, were supposed to finish last in the division and because they had a hot start, you know, at the all-star game, they're in first place. Yeah. Well, after the all-star game, then, you know, the true, the true happening happened and they end up in last place. Well, this year, I think we're doing 160 games. So I was still going to have a little bit of a shortened season, but not much with Rendon. With Trout, Rendon, and Pujols, if he has if he has an adequate year. Now we just made a trade for uh, Dexter Fowler, so he's going to be in the outfield. The other the other misnomer about them is Justin Upton. If he has a decent year, their lineup is going to be uh, something to be feared for. Now they don't have the big name catcher. They got Kurt Suzuki, mm-hmm. but again, he's you know towards probably the end of his career as well. But he looks like uh, uh, maybe he'll. Uh, add a little bit to them. I don't know if he's going to be the starter. We'll see. But the big thing for them, as with every team, is their starting pitching. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's the health. They've got a brand new general manager this year. And and Perry, he came in, he started, I mean, he got hired in late November and December, January, and and in February, he's really gone out and made some active trades. If you get on social media, the fans here they're all upset about not getting Trevor Bauer. Everybody and their brother wanted Trevor Bauer. 
mm-hmm. especially since he's from Southern California. And, you know, the Dodgers got him. There's so much, there's only so much money that can go around. I, I, <laughs> these people that, uh, that spend everybody else's money, it's easy to do it's when easy. you're an armchair quarterback. Sure. Yeah. But I was watching, uh, I was watching Alex Cobb throw today. He's one of the, you know, the big trades they made with Baltimore. And I don't know if he's going to be their, their opening day pitcher, but man, he sure looks smooth. Mm-hmm. Now, I say that with a caveat because I said the same thing about Matt Harvey a couple of years ago when they got him. <laughs> he looked real good in spring training, and then you know it just didn't work out in a regular season. But if if Alex if he can stay healthy and pitch the way he looked today, oh, I think he'll be great. Otani uh, Shohei Otani, uh, he's you know a couple of years removed from Tommy John surgery. He's recovered from his left knee surgery now, and I'll tell you one thing. That guy, uh, watching batting practice, I've seen him three times in batting practice, and that guy is just cranking. He hit some balls out last week. He hit probably 25 out. Now, again, it's batting practice. Today, he hit one. Now, again, the minor leagues, he hit one out of the the stadium or uh, out of the, the field. It's 363 down the line. And then you have probably about a 20 foot gap to the minor league uh, complex, to their to the uh, clubhouse. Well, the clubhouse is probably 35 feet from the floor of the the right field area to the top of the clubhouse. He hit it on top of the roof. Wow! And so that had to be. I mean, it had to go 450 feet in the air. Now he's looked good pitching. You know, he's been throwing in the mid 90s. So I don't know what they're going to do with him. I don't know if they're going to let him pitch every sixth day and come back in DH or if they're going to use him out in the field or whatever. So as long as their starting pitching is healthy, they'll be competitive. The key okay. will be their, their, their relievers. That's good to hear because the Angels need to be uh, competitive, uh, especially with Mike Trout. And uh, you know, it's been a while since they've been uh, really in the playoffs. So it would be nice to see them. Well, you know, if they're going to do it, this will be the year to do it. Yep. And it would be nice for Albert Pujols to go out on a height also. You know? Yeah, it would. It would. I think everybody's pulling for him, especially being the last year of his contract. And I don't, who's to say, is he, is he going to retire? Is he going to try to go back to St. Louis and play one more year? And is he going to retire a Cardinal? Is he going to retire an angel? You know, he, he made his name in St. Louis. So he did, you know what? That's a good point. If, uh, if the NL has got a DH next year, maybe he'll go back to St. Louis for a year. I've heard and... that there's, I've heard there might be talk that might even consider it still doing it this year. There, right. So we'll see. He made a mistake leaving St. Louis. I mean, it's it's really hindsight to say that, but at the time, you know, people were talking about if he stayed with St. Louis, there'd be a statue erected for him. And oh, they'll put one there. Yeah. Well, and and I'm assuming that when he goes to the Hall of Fame, that he's going to have St. Louis on his hat. So. Oh yeah, and yes. he's going to walk right into the Hall of Fame. There's yes. no doubt about that. But he could have. But he could have stayed with the Cardinals, and he could have been an immortal with the Cardinals. That- yeah, you know, the, the thing is with these guys with the big contracts, I, that's like our, you know, last year we had Joe Adai. Joe Adai is supposed to be, you know, the next coming of, of Mike Trout. And I just kind of wondered, do these guys just falter underneath the pressure with Albert? You know, you know he had a couple good years with, with the Angels, but is he trying to live up to the contract, or is he just playing baseball? Mm-hmm. And uh, I agree with you, Leonard. I think if he'd stayed in St. Louis, he could have just kept his career going. So, 
Well, we really uh, want to thank you for uh, taking the time with us, telling us all about spring training in Tempe. And good luck to the Angels. We'll be watching from here. And, you know, maybe let's not make it a year. Let's hopefully have you on sometime during the season and we could see what's going on, the status of these Hey, teams. anytime, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm at your beck and call. I appreciate the opportunity. And it's just, it's just as fun for me as it is for you, you know. And I hope it's fun for you. So, oh, yes. It is. Uh, I'll talk baseball to anybody at any time. So, <laughs> yes. Thank you. Well, baseball, thank you very much. Well, that's a big show, Lanet. Oh, wow. That if, if people have, this is something I know if I'm listening to this, I'm probably listening in sections because who has, who has the time to listen to the whole thing? But if you don't, if you didn't make it to the end of this, shame on you. Go back, make sure you listen. That's the great thing about podcasts. You don't have to listen all at once, listen in sections, but you don't want to miss any of this. Jeff, wow. Episode 87 knocks it out of the park. Absolutely. And Len, how do we end our podcast? We end it with the poet, Shel Krakowski, the musician, Dave Dresser, with their rendition. Well, their rendition. It's their song. Baseball always brings you home. See ya. See you next time.